Welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton and I'm your host. It's an honor to be with our good friend again today, American hero, Paul Galanti. During this episode, we discuss the work his late wife, Phyllis, did with the National League of Families, including her trips to Paris, France, and to Sweden, doing everything she could to help free her husband and the other American POWs. When the bombing of Hanoi intensified, Paul also discusses his experience being moved from the Wallow prison in Hanoi up to Dogpatch, a POW camp further north, very close to the Chinese border. So let's get right back to it. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. had uh, an email come in from a good friend of mine, a guy by the name of Mike Stewart. Um, He's a classmate of mine from the Naval Academy, graduated with me, served in the Navy. And then after the Navy, he continues to serve the country today. He's currently the Deputy Director for Integrated War Fighting at the Pentagon. And he's been listening to all these podcasts. And he told me to tell you he's really enjoying listening to to your podcast, by the way. So uh, he's, re- he's really enjoying this. And he writes in, he says, in past episodes, you've talked a lot about your wife, Phyllis, going to Paris to meet with the French communist lady that you were forced to meet with in Hanoi. And he's really curious what happened during that meeting. Um, what did she say to Phyllis in that meeting? I know you were in Vietnam during all that, but um, I'm sure you talked about it a little bit when you came home. What what did Phyllis have to say about that? Uh, she, uh, obviously, L'Humanité is a communist newspaper, so she knew where this lady was coming from. So she went over a little defensive to start with, but said she met her, and I think they had a glass of wine. They were, I don't know if they had it there at the woman's apartment or somewhere else, but they had a glass of wine together. And, uh, and, and Phyllis said, I kind of liked her. And I said, I didn't like her because when I met her, she had a big boil right smack in the middle of her forehead. And I wasn't answering any questions. I just kept staring at that, at the boil right up here in the middle of her head. <laughs> and she seemed pretty uncomfortable. And I just, I wouldn't take my eyes off. I just kept looking at it. And she knew it was this big, ugly looking red thing on her forehead. So I don't remember what we talked about, but I was dodging questions. I, she didn't have anything concrete to say. She thought I spoke French better than I do. And um, uh, and we really had a hard time understanding. So I just sat there looking at her, looking at this boil on her <laughs> forehead and saying, je sais pas. I don't know. So did you two, when you met with her in Vietnam, did you speak back and forth in French? You didn't have an English translator or a French translator, rather? I think there was one there, but he didn't say anything to her. I mean, there's a, a Vietnamese with us, and I, he never said anything. And, and she was talking, and I was really you know, just playing dumb, just like I did with the Vietnamese. You know, I've, if I was smart, would I be flying airplanes over North Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> did, did Phyllis ever mention to you, did, did the lady... 
did the lady seem sympathetic to Phyllis? Um, I mean, obviously Phyllis was there looking for information about you. She wanted to understand better what what condition you were in, how you were being treated. That was the lady help, trying to be helpful at all? I didn't ask. Phyllis didn't say. Yeah, but I suspect. She said, you know, I saw the guy, he came, they brought him in, I talked to him for 20 minutes, and then they took him out again, because we, we were having no conversation to speak of. I couldn't, I, I just had a suddenly momentarily, momentary lapse on my French, and uh, I couldn't, that's, I told her that, I kind uh, I said, I can't talk, and I don't know. Yeah. And so and, but they were, they were and, and then how about with Phyllis? Uh, when she, when Phyllis was with her in Paris, um, did they have a trance? Because uh, Phyllis didn't speak French, did she? Oh yeah, she was a French major at William and Mary. Okay, she spoke she spoke fluent French. So they conversed in French. So they they were able to communicate much better then. Yep. And yeah. if, if Phyllis tells you she liked her, she must have been helpful to some extent and given some information to Phyllis about you or, and how you were doing. She, she didn't have any. All she knows they brought this skinny little guy in to talk to her and the guy that I was uh, totally non-compass menace. Okay. Um, so did, did Phyllis's trip to Paris to, to speak to this lady is that what uh, kind of spawned her to to help Sybil Stockdale start the National League of Families, or had the National League of Families uh, already been started before she went over to Paris? I, again, I don't know the time frame. I just, it just never occurred to me to ask. But I got interviewed by her in the, in the uh, fall of '66, and. Uh, and I just don't know. I know the, the Life magazine interview because I was at a couple cellmates then, and and, uh, um, and you know I knew they they came in in June of '67, and the article was in, in October, late October of '67. But with Madeline Rifo, um, I don't even have the book anymore. My I sold my house to my son. I think the book's over there. Yeah, so I, I'm looking at the book right now, uh, the National League of Wives, uh, which oh, yeah. is the, the organization that Phyllis helped uh, Sybil Stocktail start, and and in the in the book, there's there's a lot about Phyllis, first of all, and there's a picture of Phyllis with this uh, French communist lady, and the picture's from February of 1972. So this, this is toward then the, the tail end of the war. Uh, and so it looks like it's well after the National League of Families had been started. And, and so it looks, looks like um, uh, at the, by this point, Phyllis had been doing work uh, with National League of Families for several years by that point. Yeah, yeah she, so she lived in Richmond which is a hundred miles from DC where all the action was. So she volunteered to do a lot of liaison for them. Most of them were West coast. There are a few, uh, Ann Mills Griffith, a few of them were up in DC, but, um, 
uh, Phyllis was here in Richmond, single, basically, and work. she had a job, and but she could get up. They gave her as much time as she wanted. The uh, Reynolds Metals, she could work for them. They gave her the limousine. She had to run up to D.C. for something. So, um, uh, and, and actually, I think she was elected, uh, whatever Sybil was, chairman or president uh, of the National League in December of 72, about the time that um, all the peace talks were going on, the Christmas bombing and and stuff. And so she wasn't she wasn't chairman of the, the league for very long because she resigned as soon as I came home. Right. Yeah, that's the way I understood it, too. I've been doing some reading on that. So she started the organization with Sybil Stockdale. Sybil was the, the first leader of the organization. And then uh, Phyllis took over later um, and, and held that leadership position. And, and while she was working uh, with the Na- National League of Wives um, uh, on behalf of all the POWs and the family, she d- she did a lot of trips uh, she went to Paris, obviously. Um, did she did she go to the actual peace negotiations as well uh, when Henry no, Kissinger I, was there? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, she, she went to Stockholm with a big group from Richmond and a whole lot of letters, 7,500 letters, saying release the POWs. And, and that's the, I, I knew she went over then. She went over to meet with Madeleine Riffo, but that was a trip all by herself. Yeah. And she went over once with a group of wives. And again, I don't know the time frame. And there's still. another great picture of Phyllis in the National League of Wives book. Um, Phyllis is standing on the back of a tractor trailer uh, that's filled with letters that were written uh, by American citizens and that and uh, to uh, to the address to the Vietnamese uh, demanding better treatment for our POWs. And she spearheaded that effort to get those over to the North Vietnamese embassy in Sweden. So uh, she she was very involved. She she was also, and again, I've seen pictures uh, of this as well. She was involved in lobbying uh, our own government, and and she made trips to the White House. Uh, and I've seen pictures with her in the Oval Office with uh, Richard Nixon. So she. Did, did she ever tell you about how she felt uh, as far as what kind of cooperation did she get from our government? Were, did she feel like that, that our government was working with her or against her, or were they kind of indifferent to what she was trying to achieve? Uh, she never had any trouble with them. But Henry Kissinger, when I met him at one of the POW reunions, uh, there's the big one in the tents on the south lawn of the White House. And uh, after we finished dinner, we were sitting at the table with the Air Force Chief of Staff, who I had no idea who he was, and a couple of Army POWs. And as soon as dinner was over, Phyllis says, come here, I want you to meet somebody. And we went up, this little short, curly-headed guy with big glasses. Went up and says, Dr. Kissinger, I'd like you to meet my husband, Paul. And he looked down at me and said, your life, she gave me so much trouble. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. It's a, but anyway, he obviously he was very fond of her. I think uh, she never mentioned having any trouble with them. Uh, she kind of liked Nixon, um, and, um, and but you know we had other things to discuss at that particular time. Talking about history, 
right then was not really uh, on my mind. And I just, frankly, I just don't remember uh, all that stuff. She never, never talked about what she did with the league. She was very proud of it, I think, but she never talked about it. And I never asked. Yeah. Okay. Well, she obviously did do a whole lot and, and, um, she did a whole lot of good for you and all the other POWs, um, that were there. So let, let's, uh, come back now to, um, back to Hanoi and, and bring it back to where we left off during our last conversation. So Ho Chi Minh died in September of 1969. And you said before your treatment started to change at that time. The, the brutal torture um, was, was getting less after that. And then the Sontade raid occurred in 1970. And when the Sante raid uh, occurred, things really started to get shaken up. Can, can you re, uh, review for me now when the, you were at the Sante prison and they moved right. you just a matter of months before that raid occurred, did they take yep. you to the power plant? Is that the prison that they took you to after Sante? No, after Sante, we went to a camp in between Sante and Hanoi. It was a new camp, and I, I get them all mixed up. They kept calling them names that had nothing to do with it, located. Oh, okay. But Sante, I remembered, and uh, it, was, it was Bastille Day, and um, uh, July 14th of uh, um, uh, 1970, I think, we moved. And uh, and it was all of a sudden, and we, we weren't sure why, but they moved us at night. We moved into this new camp it was it was brand new it still had uh, fresh smelling whitewash i didn't use paint and uh and we were in there i was with with uh, eight eight people in that room four guys i'd been living with at sante and then four more and, and we lived together until the uh um the sante raid we didn't know there was a raid imminent or anything like that if, if the vietnamese had known about the raid they would have shot all those helicopters down. Yeah, they, they wouldn't have had a chance. But uh, and so we moved, and uh, that day was the first time they ever let us all out in small groups. We couldn't mingle with each other, but each little group could mingle with itself in several corners of the of the uh, camp. And about that time, this little uh, uh, a buffalo hunter drone. Uh, it's Orion. Uh, a drone went over the camp, obviously taking pictures. And, and I've seen one of the pictures that came out of it is me. And they're you know, pointing up at this drone yeah. as it's going over. And we were, we're all out in the camp. And so they, and, and I was told by debriefers, that was probably the last photo they got before they decided to go with the raid. And of course, that was the night we moved from Sante Back to uh, this camp that was in between. Yeah. And, and once, you know, Camp Hope, Faith, and I, I get them all mixed up. They were, they were kind of cutesy little names at first, uh, probably promulgated by Air Force guys because they didn't make any sense. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't identify them with the camp. And um, 
So um, a couple th- those two really big things they really changed the way you were treated the the death of Ho Chi Minh and then the Sante raid. So after the Sante raid occurred, how long was it before the Vietnamese hauled you out of there? And I, I think you told me before they they took you from the prison you were in and they brought most of the POWs to the Wallo prison. How, how long did it take them to, to get you and move you to Wallo? Uh, well, I'm living in this middle camp now. Yeah. That, we had, they had the, the Sante raid and we were moving out. Uh, we moved out the next morning, right back to Wallo. Okay. And it was, it was obviously a very hurried move. And, uh, and they, they put us in, I think, school buses. I don't remember something we were sitting in. And we went right into Hanoi and right into the these big cells. I knew they were there in the camp somewhere, but because uh, they kept all these Vietnamese prisoners. And that's that ended up being camp for the rest of the stay there. Were these huge rooms uh, with, uh, we got put 58, I think it was 58 POWs in one cell. And that was, that was too tight. They, they moved it down to 48 within a couple of days. And uh, but that, that's the first time we'd ever you know, been in big rooms together, uh, no restrictions on talking inside the room. And uh, it, it was a good time. And, and how long did they leave you there? They, they did not leave you at Wallo after that for too long before they moved you, did they? Well, no, they left us there until the bombing started up again. It was enough times when we had all these classes and everything else because we had you know, big groups of guys. It was a year and a half or so, I think. Okay. But, um, but we didn't move up to uh, Dog Patch until after the bombing started again, the spring of uh, um, 19. Let me get them all mixed up. That was now. probably 72 then around that time, right? Yeah, 72. Yep. Okay. Spring so they moved 72. you up to Dog Patch and. and like I was telling you before, I've never talked to a POW before um, about the Dog Patch prison. And, and so that's the one up really far north, up by the Chinese border. Um, do, did they have any rhyme or reason to for which POWs they selected to move from Walo, uh and, and take up to the dog dog patch prison up by the border? No, I don't know. It's a bunch of guys I was living with at the time. We went up there and we were in the same uh, little houses um, for the uh, the rest of the world, actually, until we went home. But the, um, they, uh, um, there's no rhyme or reason that I could see for anything they did. It was, uh, uh, and I was just in this crowd so we were together for a lot, a lot of the time, and uh, but we were in this little cell. I remember getting shoved into. We went up there at night and got shoved in this thing, no electricity, pitch black, into the, just shoved into this brick uh, or a stone house, and uh, filling the walls and stuff, and then feel an opening and reach down. There's some boards on the ground. That was our bed. You know, it was filthy. Just uh, and. and uh, and so we're talking to each other in the dark, no lights. And uh, we finally sorted it out and figured out how many were in each room. And if we're exhausted by this time. So we just got down on the boards and, and went to sleep. 
in the middle of the night, there was a blood curdling scream in my cell. And Bill Butler, who uh, was a, uh, hopefully is a big fan of reptiles. And uh, he was a biology major from Stanford and a great guy. But he let out this blood curdling scream and something had come up the leg of his pajamas. He was slithering up the leg of his pajamas. <laughs> and so he, he grabbed it out, you know, and uh, uh, he, he loved snakes and, and reptiles and all that stuff. So he pulls this thing out of his, his pajamas and, and took his uh, Ho Chi Minh sandal, his entire piece of tire, big, heavy piece of tire tread, and beat this thing until it stopped moving. And, and the next morning, we waited for the sun to come up, and it never came up. We waited and waited and waited and waited. Like, finally, somebody discovered there was a brick out on the far corner of the room. That's the only vent in the entire building was one brick out. So he took this thing over there and held it up to the, uh, the a little bit of light came in. It was a six-foot-long cobra. Holy cow. <laughs> so so well, he, he became known as Hurt Man for the rest of the uh stay and he didn't sleep well for a few nights oh i bet he's lucky that that thing didn't hurt him it's um, hard it's hard to they, they, they strike when they fall down on you and uh he couldn't fall down because he's the guy's leg because, oh, man. Uh, so what was the uh the most senior officer i know a lot of the really senior officers like uh, stockdale for example they kept him down in the Wallow prison. What did they move any of the lieutenant colonels or, or full birds up to Dog Patch? Was there anybody that senior there? I don't remember. We had most almost all Air Force captains and Navy lieutenants in my cell, a couple of ensigns, and uh, um, but I think that's like I, I really have a hard time remembering who was in that because we were in it for so long, such a short period of time. Yeah. So the Christmas bombing, as soon as the Christmas bombing was over, we moved out and then, uh, uh, I guess we were there a little bit longer than that. I, it, I just can't, I really have a hard time remembering. So my exactly dad, what, I don't know if you've ever talked to my dad about, about this, but so I've talked to him a lot about this. So he, of course, was not at Dog Patch. He never went up there. But he has his own personal theory on why the Vietnamese moved certain people up there. Um, you know, like you said, uh, it they moved you all up there after the bombing of Hanoi started, and it got really intense. And um, I, I think they were beginning to get very nervous after the Sante raid and our aggressive bombing they felt like we could actually uh, uh, invade Hanoi and come after them. So my dad's theory is that they moved the young, the younger of the POWs up to Dogpatch to uh, close to the Chinese border in case we actually did invade. Uh, yeah. Their plan was to take these young POWs that would presumably live longer and move them over into China. Uh, so they, they, they could, that, that's his theory on it. That's, that was our thought also. And we knew what we knew was close to the Chinese border. Didn't know exactly where, but Lang San was uh, one of the closest towns that's right across the, uh, the border from China. So I think we were about five kilometers 
from China. Yeah. And, um, of course, I never went there, but it was, um, but, you know, it was an okay time, but there was no electricity. Uh, they played NOAN on a battery radio, which was, wasn't, I uh, didn't have enough volume to hear it very well. We, we really didn't care. And, um, uh, but I did have one interrogation up there, and the uh, camp commander called me in, and uh, he said, you know, he went through the usual crap. So I was a good guy. Interrogation, there's tea and cookies and stuff like that. And he, he's going on and on. How is your health? I said, well, it's bad. It's awful. He said, how is your food? He says, food, you can't look how skinny I am. I can't. And uh, it went on, and I'm complaining about everything. And... Uh, Finally, he said, according to you, what are your wife's activities? I said, how do I know my wife's activities? I don't get any mail. And he said, aha, maybe that is why you get no mail. And uh, I said, I wasn't sure what she was doing, but he didn't like it. So therefore, I did. (laughs) Wow. So, you know, you're really uniquely... uh qualified to to comment on this because you you were at 10 i believe it was 10 different camps during your almost seven years there in north vietnam was it was the daily routine significantly different in each of the camps uh did they each have their own uh flavor to them so to speak or was it pretty much the same thing at every place you lived no, they're they're all basically the same. <clears throat> um, um, and some of them, I moved. I moved ten times. I, I don't think it was ten camps, but I gave you the list. I don't remember how many camps were on it. But it, um, um, you know, you to get early early morning, you know, we woke up. You know, five a.m. Bang, bang, bang on the garbage can lid, and then uh, uh, about ten in the morning or so, we'd have the first meal which is pumpkin soup and rice or green soup and rice. And then uh, um, they go on and on and on and on and on, on all, all day long until um, the second meal would come you know, after in the wintertime after it got dark. And we had the second meal. And then uh, oh, they had also had the morning the propaganda radio. They'd play that. Right. And then and the meal would come about 10 o'clock and then about in the middle of the afternoon, we have a second meal. And then at night, about 8 o'clock, they play a rerun of, of Hanoi Hannah's broadcast. And um, and we used to listen to it. It was, all, it was almost a joke. I mean, we just read between the lines and everything she said happened. We assumed it didn't happen. And everything, for ignominious defeats of the U.S. aggressors, we assumed we obviously won a battle. And, right. And... Uh, so by reading them, read, read their news backwards, uh, we, we pretty much kept up with the war. Um, yeah. So the, the camps, pretty much the routine is the same. But you mentioned before at Dogpatch, for example, you didn't have electricity up there. So uh, were the living conditions significantly worse or more difficult for you, for example, at Dogpatch? compared to uh, the Wallow prison? Or again, was that pretty much the same? Uh, it's about the same. The food was the same. I mean, they cooked it. Uh, it was 
to these big uh, army cook pots, and then uh, just you know bring it around. To, I think they gave us just some big pots. We had to sort it out amongst ourselves. And uh, <clears throat> but that varied from camp to camp. Usually at Wallow, they used to just give us a plate. And we had to put the food on them, put it down on the ground for us to pick up. And so they put it down where all the rat tracks were. And, and uh, it was, uh, you just sort of got used to that. Yeah. The most interesting thing is I never got sick over there. And I can't figure out why, man. All this filthy food, it just you know, uh, it got dragged through rat turds and, and everything else. And and uh, but I never got sick ever the whole time. And um, um, I used That's to fake amazing. being sick. I used to get fake being sick. But I suspect it was the no communicable diseases. So we didn't have anybody to communicate with. We were in isolation in these little cells for most of the time. And, and uh, then when we got the big cells, I mean, it was the same thing there. I mean, some of the guys got sick, but I never, never got sick once at Manoy. And oh. I couldn't figure out why. Well, that's awesome. So in, in some of the conversations, at least one of the conversations that, that you and I had, you talked about a guy by the name of uh, George Coker and his escape attempt. Um, and I've read a little bit about him and, and what he was able to do. Were you in the same prison camp with him when he did one of his I, escape attempts? I, I was, but I didn't know it. It, it was in the camp out by the power plant. Okay. I was in that, but uh, I forget which room he was in. There were a bunch of little individuals. Anybody could have got out of it. There was, I mean, they didn't even have any locks. But you're right smack downtown. And, and so, I mean, I could have gotten it. We had, I was living with two other guys. And I said, well, you know, we could have, we could have escaped it. Where the hell are we going to go? I mean, I was the shortest one. I'm 5'10. And then Dave Gray is 6'2. And Charlie Green's is about that height. And uh, so we got out of town. And here we are. It's, it's like a whole bunch of Gullivers in the land of the dwarfs wandering around. In downtown Hanoi. Plus, we didn't know, we weren't sure exactly where we were. We knew about which direction the river was because um, uh, they'd had us out walking and sweeping the streets and stuff. And they'd pulling these, these big carts around there so that people would yell at us and point and laugh and, and make fingers. So I, we, I knew about where the, the river was. But where do you go? I didn't want to even sure which is upstream and which is downstream. And uh, uh, so. Uh, anyway, that, we did consider that a viable option. And we were there a few days. They moved us to a camp called The School, which is right up the street. And the same thing, little houses. And uh, and uh, we weren't sure what was going on. But all of a sudden, the uh, Louis the Snake, uh, that was his, his gardening name. Louis the Snake was, a, I guess, a character in some, something with one of my cellmates. And we're the only ones that named him that. Right. Because we didn't have any contact with anybody else. And uh, we'd watch all these production teams uh, in action, you know, where they they all have a car just like we had walking around. There are four of them. One guy's in charge, and uh, two guys are pulling it. And one guy is sort of talking and passing the instructions on from the leader. Just, uh, just a bunch of bureaucratic analysis. But they pull a car around, and they just stop. 
I just sit down there for the rest of the day and not do anything. <laughs> so so when, when George Coker was planning his escape and he went, he, he didn't communicate with you guys first to, to tell you I, that I, he was gone? I, I, never had any, I never had any communication. It was after the war I figured out that that's the camp we could escape from. And, and he and uh, uh, George McKnight, the Air Force guy, they got together and George said over to him and said, I'm not sure what's going on, but I don't want to die here. I'm going to get out of here. And so that's when they decided to go. That, that was the planning for it. Huh. And they had no idea. So they went over the wall, which wasn't very hard. And they're out in the street, worked their way down, down the, to the uh, river. And they floated for a day or so. They weren't sure which way they were going. They didn't know where they were. And, uh, and they're lying there underwater with a reed, breathing through a reed, looking up through the water. And all of a sudden, here comes this guard up there with a bunch of clothes. He's going to wash clothes. And he's washing clothes. And he looks down. And sees these two faces under the water looking back at him. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> busted. So, so they got caught accidentally. And then did they, they bring the, did they, they bring them back became, to the same camp? I think so. I ended up with the senior officers. They were the only, they had the distinction of being the only junior officers in Alcatraz. And so George Coker's main distinction is he was the coffee mess treasurer of Alcatraz. <laughs> and all his commanders and colonels. And, and and then George McKnight was an Air Force captain. And George was an Air Force, um, a Navy JG when he was shot down. So uh, George Coker is one of the, he looks like Bob Newhart to me. And he's one of the funniest guys I've ever been around. And uh, very, very, very religious. <laughs> so George, George, a.k.a. Bob Newhart, ends up being the coffee mess treasurer of Alcatraz, the worst camp in the POW system. Wow. Um, you know, George Coker is a guy, I think it would be great to have him on the podcast and talk to him since uh he actually did that escape attempt it'd be i sent he, him an email and is, i have not heard back from him oh call him back at goliath said uh to, to talk to you okay. otherwise he's going to be a heap of trouble i'm gonna get my uncle carmine after him <laughs> uncle 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 carmine galanti was the hitman for the gambino mob all right i'm gonna i'm gonna hit him up again um <laughs> I'm going to hit him up again. He, sure. he really is one of my favorite guys. I just say, just say, Glenn says you're not going to be one of his favorite guys if you don't do this. All right, I'll do it. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to call him. I got his cell phone too. After I didn't hear back from him on the email, uh, I called my dad and got his cell phone. So that's my next step. I'll give him a call this weekend. Yeah. Refer to him. I think I gave that nickname as the coffee mess treasure of Alcatraz. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, there, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about um, this time that that really I, I've given it a lot of thought. So the, one of the, the camp senior officers that made the biggest impact on my dad, because he, he was very problematic for my dad, was was Major Bai. And I've asked you yeah. about Major Bai in the past and it didn't seem like you had very much contact with Major Bai at all. One of the the camp commanders that that you had mentioned before that was the nastiest to you, at least, 
was a guy that you called the bug. And so, um, what, what prison camp was the bug over? Do you remember which one he was in charge of? He was my, uh, standing my interrogations and heartbreak when I first got captured. And he's a, a very weird looking guy. He's got one eye that was always part, part way open. And, uh, and, uh, I, he's just an arrogant, I mean, of course they all were, but he was uh, uh, more sadistic than the rest of them. That, that was primarily the torture camp then was heartbreak. Although they had it in the other camps also, but heartbreak is the one that was the worst for me. And uh, uh, and I'm just trying to think, I can't even place him now. I can place the rabbit because there's so many pictures of him everywhere. I only had rabbit only sat in on a couple of interrogations. And he'd come back when I was giving them a hard time and just to get, act real arrogant and say they're going to take me out and shoot me and do all that kind of stuff. But uh, uh, the bug was the one who was the interrogator on my camp. And he's the one that, that put the torture sergeant on me uh, four times. Right. Did, did, um, did uh, the bug stick around? till the end of the war. So when, when you were getting ready to be released, was he still around? And the reason I asked that is Major Bai did not. Major Bai kind of disappeared shortly after, I, I think it was shortly after the death of Ho Chi Minh and maybe the Sante raid, but soon after that he disappeared and no POW saw him again. Was the bug with you guys throughout the entire seven years you were there? I never saw the bug again after my heartbreak, which is early on. I never saw him again. But the other, the other guy, Major Bai, there was something going on because our treatment after Ho Chi Minh died really got him. I think they were trying to improve it, but they didn't know how because we were getting treated just like their, uh, their prisoners. And uh, they kept coming up with stupid things. The biggest thing was the little uh, snake charmer baskets that they, they put the water jug in to keep the water hot. They weren't sure why, but Ho Chi Minh told them that you have to drink hot water because it's good for your stomach. And so <laughs> this was to keep the little, so this is to keep the little pot hot. They didn't worry about it before. We just kept our little jug of uh, water out and uh, they knew it would cool off and we're probably going to get sick then because only hot water is good for you. And then I, I'm sure they didn't understand germs and that sort of thing. Right. Um, but uh, I never saw the bug after that. Major Bai, um, and, and uh, my memory is foggy on this, but somebody who spoke Vietnamese told us that the Major Bai, the, the, the commander of all the camps, is what he called himself. Uh, he uh, it had to do a confession on the Vietnamese radio. Then he disappeared. Nobody saw him again. And I think it was uh, they got so much bad publicity when Hegdahl went home and then all that torture and bad stuff, all that, all that came out. Although like our guys knew it, but it wasn't public. When Hegdahl came out, it became public and there was a huge outcry about it. And I would think that's when major Bai disappeared and they brought all these stooges in who are trying to make our conditions better. But the ironic thing is they didn't know how they thought they were getting treated pretty good already. So, and they were doing stuff like the snake charmer baskets, which we used as a great 
repository for contraband <laughs> razor blades and things like that that um you know we'd use for other for nefarious purposes uh including one guy made a radio out of a razor blade which was uh, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about that too no i haven't that i have not heard about uh, that i forget who it was i think it was uh, dick brenneman who was that uh he's also the guy that designed the only home um that he actually built it had three master bedrooms in it and a swing pool underneath the bedrooms so people could jump out of all three bedrooms into the pool <laughs> the second floor at the same time down in the um, oh yeah and he also had an airport and he and another guy bought this one square mile of land in desert out near Williams Air Force Base and, and Dick was a flight instructor back at Willie which is a, a, tra a training big he was a funny guy. <laughs> so anyway, but he's the only guy who did that. His nickname was Dog because he used to just lie there on the bed, curl up with a blanket. He looked like a little dog sleeping. And he's think these great thoughts and he's, he's planning his house all this time. He actually built it and it was basically a runway like this with two roads down the each side of it. And the roads had uh, um, uh, driveways into these these houses and you could fly your airplane in and pull your airplane up and uh and then just turn it around and pull it back into your hangar which is one side of the house and the garages were on the other and where and, where uh, did he build that house where where it, when you it's came a, um where williams air force base is chandler chandler arizona okay and uh it's about it's one square mile it's the airport's still there and but he had this little a little twin engine airplane and he said, let me show you. I said, I was over busy one day. He said, I'm flying over to San Diego for lunch. And so he just picked the phone up in his kitchen. This is, they didn't have internet back then. So he picked up the phone, which is a hotline to air traffic control, found his flight plan, went out to his airplane, went out and just took off down the runway. And he was in San Diego about an hour later. Oh, that's awesome. And he designed so he that whole house in his head while he was in Vietnam. The, the whole house, the whole house. And he had, uh, he had a, uh, um, airport in mind, but yeah. he, he got an air force, but one of his buddies at Williams, they put it together. And so he went out and he had a, a slab board for his house, which was the first one in this development. And then he built the rest of the house himself all the way. He always wanted to do it. And so he, he used to do, get up early in the morning and go out and do it before he went to work. In the afternoon, he'd come back and, uh, and work on his house some more. Well, his nickname in the hangar was Dog, and they all picked up on that. So that was became his Air Force nickname after he came home. And all his students said, this guy's really cool. And so we can go out and help him. And he, he buys beer for us. And so... <laughs> Dog always had this beer, and he had all these, these young flight students out there helping him build it. Anyway, he was dog, and they referred to them as underdog. He's underdog one, two, three, four, five. Oh, that's fun. That's great. But he built it, and he built it, and I was out there after he had built the house. My dad and, and dog got to be pretty good friends. Because dog came to one of our POW reunions in Norfolk and brought his girlfriend with him. And it was, it was kind of a wild, you know, we were going out to Oceana stuff like that but at the hotel where there and dog had his girlfriend with him she kept on zipping her flight suit and she didn't have anything on underneath it <laughs> my dad thought 
my dad thought that was a, was a retired army colonel. He thought that was a little bit racy. He, <laughs> he lived with he lived with fighter pilots during World War II because he built air bases. And so the, the, these guys, of course, there's a certain image you have to maintain, like cocky, arrogant, scarf in the wind, you know, screw the world. And, and uh, right. uh, it was the same then. And dog just fit the mold perfectly. Oh, that's awesome. Well, look, you, you and I have had some really great conversations and you've shared some really interesting history on the Vietnam War and your POW experience. Um, next time you and I come back, I want to talk about uh, some really happy times. Uh, and I think you'll really enjoy talking about this. I want to talk about your Freedom Day, uh, the day you got released uh, and you left uh, the airport in Hanoi, went to Clark Air Force Base. I want to talk about your homecoming. Um, the favorite picture that I've ever seen of you and Phyllis together is the picture when you two were reunited at the airport. I think it was at Norfolk, uh, Norfolk Air, Airfield. NAS Norfolk. NAS Norfolk. And I think you told me it was like two o'clock in the morning, and just missed Val just missed Valentine's Day by two hours. Yeah, I mean, but what a great picture! You guys look more more like Hollywood movie stars in that picture than you do a returning uh, POW. Because I mean, you guys look great, and you probably hadn't slept in a couple of days. Uh, I guess you just had so much adrenaline going. You look fantastic. Well, Phyllis still looked like that when she died. Yeah. You know, at age 73. Um, uh, I, I put on about 50 pounds from that picture. <laughs> but that, my waist and those, those the trousers that were with that khaki uniform that we had, 28-inch waist. Wow. So no guy 5'11 has a 28-inch waist. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I look like a POW. Yeah. Well, you guys both look terrific in that picture, and I love that. That that that's my favorite picture of both of you. Um, so that's what I want to talk about next time when we come back, and that that'll be that'll be a lot of fun conversations and a lot of fun stories. I think. Great. Okay, Pat. Been my pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. We've got something really special planned for our next episode with Paul. We'll have another Yankee Air Pirate join the show to have a bourbon with Pablo to talk about the old days. You don't want to miss this one. It'll be our first episode with two Yankee Air Pirates mic'd up at the same time. During our conversation with Paul, we'll also discuss his last weeks in Hanoi, his Freedom Day release memories, and his reunion with his wife Phyllis just days later at Naval Air Station Norfolk. Also, we've got one favor to ask. If you enjoy the Yankee Air Pirate podcast series, please recommend it to a friend and share the link on your social media pages. It's an easy and free way to help us spread these historic stories as we lead up to the 50-year anniversary of the POW release sequence. That will be celebrated in February of 2023. Visit and like our Facebook page, The Yankee Air Pirate, to see pictures and video of the people, places, and things we discuss in our podcast series. 
Also, you can contact us with questions or feedback by emailing us at theyankeeairpirate at gmail.com. That's theyankeeairpirate, all one word, at gmail.com. We appreciate all our listeners. Semper Fi.